Well, good morning again. This week, we're going to cover Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, and I've titled this, God's Kingdom Proclaimed. So let's pray, we'll jump in. Lord, I thank you for this day that you've given us to worship you, Lord, to spend time in your word. Lord, our goal here is to draw near to you, to find out more about you, so we can love you more. That's it. Lord, there's no other motive here. We just want to love you more. And the only way we can love you is to know you. And we know you through your word. And so we're studying your word. So help us, Lord. Give us understanding. Reveal truth to us by your Holy Spirit. Truth about who you are, what you've done for us, and how much you love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week, quick revision. Last week we studied Revelation chapter 11, the first 14 verses, verses 1 to 14. And that was the story of the two special messengers from God, the two prophets that come down from God, the two witnesses, as they're called. And we saw how God will allow the Antichrist to rise to power and then confirm a covenant with Israel, which includes the rebuilding of the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. And this signing of the seven-year peace treaty marks the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, and we looked at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, for that. It says in the, he will confirm a covenant for one week, or seven years. He will have the power and authority to be able to represent the whole world and promise seven years of peace between Israel and the rest of the world. And that includes all the Muslims. So much so that Israel will be able to rebuild their Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, right next to the Muslim Dome of the Rock. Okay, We went through that last time, so I won't go into detail now. So we saw that as a part of God's plan for the ages, the Antichrist, the false Messiah, the man whom the world will listen to and trust, he will be allowed by God to deceive the world and the nation of Israel as he promises a false peace. And then, like it says in Daniel 9.27, in the middle of the week, he will break his promise. He will defile the temple. Jesus calls this the abomination of desolation. This is future. This has not happened yet. The temple has not been built yet. It can't happen yet. So he will go into there. He will set up an idol of himself. He will sacrifice a pig and he will declare that he is God. Okay, That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul says in Thessalonians. Now, there's a verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, and it says, and we can apply this to this time in history, or in the future, I should say. <laughs> it's history in God's sight, isn't it? Everything's history in God's sight. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So, if you haven't noticed, just in the last few months, miracles have happened, all right? Muslim nations that hated Israel for decades, for centuries, have made peace with Israel, and this is both unexpected and unheard of. There's a general turning of many Muslim nations toward Israel, and to me this is a sign that we are very close to the end. Now, here's a quote from Wikipedia. Israel maintains full diplomatic relations with two of its Arab neighbours. Egypt and Jordan, after signing peace treaties in 1979 and 1994, respectively. In 2020, Israel signed agreements establishing diplomatic relations with four Arab League countries. 
Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, and Morocco. So four in one year. So think about it like this. From when the nation of Israel was formed, was born in May 14, 1948, it took 31 years before Egypt, the first Arab nation, to normalize relations with Israel. And then 15 years later, Jordan followed suit in 1994. They also normalized relations with Israel. And then another 25 years go by, and we now find ourselves in 2020. Okay? It's 2020 now. 72 years since the nation of Israel was born in 1948. And suddenly, this year, we have four more nations who have willingly joined or have engaged with Israel to form diplomatic relations with Israel. Now, these nations hated Israel. They were at war with Israel. They wanted to destroy Israel. Everything they could, they would do against Israel. But suddenly, there's this change of heart. And I believe this can only be attributed to a work of God as he steers the hearts of the leaders. Remember that proverb? God steers the hearts of the king like a river. He's steering the hearts of these leaders of these countries to make decisions that lead to a prophetic events taking place. And as we saw last week, the Arabs making peace with Israel is a necessary precursor to allow the Antichrist, the false man of peace, to allow Israel to build their temple on the Temple Mount next to the Muslim Dome of the Rock. Remember, it said in the scriptures there, do not measure the outer court, because it's given to the Gentiles. And when you fit the temple on the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock is in what would have been the outer court of the temple. So, we also saw that to counter this deception, when the Antichrist is so-called man of peace, the man who seems to have all the answers to all the world's problems, who appears to have the good of all mankind at heart. When he signs or confirms this peace treaty, God sends two very special prophets, the two witnesses, most probably Moses and Elijah, who are able to do signs and wonders and warn the world, and especially Israel, about the evil nature and intent of this deceitful world dictator. They proclaim God's truth for the first half of the tribulation, or three and a half years, before God allows the Antichrist to kill them. Remember we talked about we're indestructible until our time is up. And then their bodies lie on the ground writing for three and a half days, and God then resurrects them. He says, come up here, and they resurrect, and in the hearing and sight of the whole world, cable TV, satellite TV, the two witnesses ascend up into heaven. So, as we continue in Revelation 11, we see that God's kingdom, Jesus' millennial or 1,000 year reign on earth, is announced. Now, it's stated as a fact, as though Jesus was already reigning on the earth, when as yet, there are still seven plagues to be poured out on the earth. So, let's read today's scripture. So, Revelation 11, 15 to 19, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Notice the past tense there. And then in verse 18, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. 
and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. So let's start at the beginning of that section, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded. So who is this seventh angel? How does this relate to the book of Revelation? Well, let's go back and do a quick revision on the three sets of judgments or plagues. So over the seven-year tribulation period, there's going to be three sets of judgments or plagues. So they're on the screen there. The first one, the first set of seven is the seven seal judgments. And that's in Revelation 6, and Jesus is opening the seals. We see him doing that. The second set of judgments is called the trumpet judgments, the seven trumpet judgments. And we find them and we studied them in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And the seven angels blow seven trumpets, which announce each successive judgment. And then finally, and we'll cover this in coming weeks, the seven bold judgments. And that's in Revelation chapter 16. And that's the last seven judgments before Christ returns. So, the first set of seven judgments are called the seal judgments, and we study that in Revelation chapter 6. Why are they called seal judgments? I just want to quickly revise this. In chapter 5, what happened? Jesus is before the Father. The Father has a scroll in his hand. What does Jesus do? He goes to the Father and he takes the scroll. Okay. And now Jesus undoes each of these seals, the seven seals, and as he undoes each seal, there's a new judgment. So what's so special about this scroll? Where did it come from? Why does it have seven seals? And what does it have to do with Jesus reclaiming the earth for himself? Well, in the Bible, property ownership was represented by a scroll or a title deed. Today, we have a title deed for our car, for our house. It was a double-sided scroll and sealed with seven seals. And I've got a quote from John Corson to explain how this works, scripturally. Initially, a title or property deed would be written only on the smooth side and sealed with a single seal. And you'll find an example of that in Jeremiah 32, 6-29. But if the owner became unable to meet his financial obligations, he would have to relinquish or give up his title deed and upon the other side of which would be written his debts, and upon those debts would be placed seven seals. Okay, So on the other side of the scroll, you'd write debts, and then you put seven seals on top of those debts. Okay, If at any time during the ensuing seven years he could pay off his debts, the seals would be broken and the title deed would be returned. So, what's happening in heaven? Jesus paid off the debt when he died on the cross, and now he's undoing the seals so he can take back his property. Okay. So Adam was initially given dominion of the earth. So God created him perfect, gave him dominion, have dominion over the earth, which means that he, representing all of mankind, had possession of the title deed of the earth. But then Adam forfeited it to Satan when he sinned and rebelled against God. And this explained why Paul called Satan the God of this world, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and why Jesus referred to Satan as 
the prince of this world. John chapter 12, 31. So this meant that Satan now had dominion or ownership of the earth. And our debts, our sins, were written on the back side of the scroll, on the opposite side of the scroll, the rough side, and it was sealed with seven seals. So Satan was then in possession of the title deed of the earth. Another example of this is when Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. Remember that? And Jesus didn't say, they're not yours, what are you talking about? No, it was true. He could offer them to Jesus. They were his. Jesus hadn't brought them back yet. So if Satan owned the earth, had dominion over the earth, then he also had ownership of us. So the eternal destiny of all mankind was linked to Satan. That means we go to hell, which is eternal separation from God because of our sin and rebellion against God. But God had a plan from eternity, and you know what that is. Jesus purchased or redeemed us back to himself by his blood, his sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. So Jesus bought the earth, and therefore all the people on it, back from Satan. He paid the sin debt that was written on the back of the scroll. And now everybody has a choice. We can repent, that is to turn from your sin and turn to God, and follow Jesus and spend eternity with him, or we can continue to serve Satan and spend eternity in hell, separated from God. So now the question is, again, this is mainly revision. We covered this in previous weeks. The question is now, if Jesus has defeated Satan and brought back the title deed of the earth when he died on the cross for the sins of the world, why isn't he now ruling and reigning on the earth right now? Why is he allowing all this evil, pain, and suffering to continue? Why hasn't he already removed the seven seals and claimed the earth for himself to rescue us and to finish everything off? Well, we all know that when Jesus said on the cross it is finished, he meant that the price was paid, our sin debt was paid in full, and the victory over sin and death was final and complete. Satan has no more hold over us. So again, why hasn't Jesus come back to claim what is rightfully his? And we discussed that the reason is that God wants to give us more time to repent. The longer Jesus waits to come back and claim what is rightfully his, the more people will be born and have the chance to respond to his love. And 2 Peter 3.9 explains this well. They're asking this question, where is God? Why hasn't he come back? And this is what Peter says. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think, the promise of his second coming. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So you see God's heart here. He wants everyone to repent. So now in Revelation chapter 6, the time has come for Jesus to start the process of claiming back the earth for himself. And it will take seven years. Now why, again, is there this delay of seven years? Why seven years? Well, again, God is giving more time for people to be saved. So just consider just how gracious, patient, and merciful God is. Because we know that during the seven years, many, many people will be saved. There's a great multitude that cannot be counted. But also consider that there will come a day when his patience will come to an end. As the scriptures say, and I'm going to read from Hebrews Chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. This is a warning. This is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't 
Harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. Remember the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness? There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger I took an oath, they will never enter my place of rest. So notice what it says in verses 7 and 8. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now we continue in verse 12. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, while there's still opportunity to repent, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. And I've highlighted some words there. It says, Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Do not be deceived by sin and hardened against God. This is really important. So basically, the more a person rejects God's message, the harder the heart becomes and the more difficult it is for them to repent. Consider the pre-flood world. Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, flesh and blood. Yet his days shall be 120 years. So this is basically God giving the pre-flood world 120 years to repent. That's a long time to give a world to repent. Now, how many people repented? (laughs) Just Noah and his family, right? Only they chose to enter into the Ark of Salvation. Only they were saved from judgment. Now, God already knew that no one would repent, but he still gave them the opportunity. So again, you see the heart of God. He does not want people to perish. When we get to heaven, there will be no excuses. God has given so many opportunities to people to repent. His message has gone out in whatever way. It doesn't matter, through radio, through TV, through people speaking, through angels ministering, through Jesus speaking directly to people's hearts. God has given everyone the opportunity to repent. So when we get to Revelation chapter 6, it's like God is saying, time's up, but I'll give you another seven years. And the church is raptured, we go up, and... There's this period of judgment, and that judgment focuses people. It brings people to their senses, and many people do come to their senses and do repent. So I'm just going to quickly go through the six seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6. The first one is the Antichrist is revealed, and he comes to power, and that represents the start of the tribulation. He promises peace, but the result is war. It's a world war. We can call that World War Three. The World War Three causes famine and disease. As a result of the war, famine, disease and wild beasts, a quarter of the world's population is killed. That's about 2 billion people. And during this time there is a massive persecution of the tribulation saints. So this fifth seal tells us that there's going to be this massive persecution of believers. So the church is gone, all the believers are gone, but God sends 144,000 Jewish evangelists and they preach. 
the message, the gospel message. And many, many people come to know Jesus. But they are martyred or they're killed for the word of God and for being faithful in the testimony. Because who's ruling and reigning on the earth at this time? It's the Antichrist. So, the sixth seal judgment, there's a massive earthquake and other cosmic disturbances, and the people of the earth recognize that these judgments are from God, and they fear God's judgments, and they fear God's presence. So God is making himself known to the people of the earth. Then there's a seventh seal judgment, and that's Revelation 8 verse 1, and that marks the start of the seven trumpet judgments. So these are all chronological. One follows after the other. So let's have a look at the six trumpet judgments. And the reason we're doing this is because we start with the seventh trumpet judgment, so I'm just giving the background on how we get there. So the first six trumpet judgments are, the first one, one third of all the trees are destroyed and all the grass and all the crops. One third of all the seas or oceans are destroyed, they're turned to blood. One third of all the fresh water sources are destroyed or poisoned. The fourth one, one third of all the heavens are dimmed or they stop shining. That's the sun, moon and stars. The fifth one is nasty. The demon locust from the bottomless pit caused torment for five months. And the sixth one, the four angels from the Euphrates River and the demonic army of 200 million kill one third of the people remaining on the earth. So now that's half the earth's population dead for roughly 4 billion people. There's 8 billion people alive now. So today we come to the seventh trumpet judgment. So now we know how it all flows. And this is similar to the seventh seal judgment in that it's not a judgment in and of itself, but it introduces or unveils the next set of seven judgments, which are the seven bowl judgments. So let's come back to Revelation 11.15. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So, I just want to explain one more thing about these judgments. The trumpet judgments are broken into two groups. The first four trumpet judgments, and then the last three trumpet judgments. Does that make sense? Okay, the first four and the last three. The first four are thirds. Everything's a third. A third of the trees destroyed. A third of the oceans destroyed. A third of the fresh water poisoned. A third of the heavens dimmed or stopped shining. That's bad, but it gets worse, as we studied before. And what happens is, after this fourth trumpet judgment, there's a bit of a gap, and God sends this angel in chapter 8, and this angel says in chapter 8, verse 13, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. That's the fifth, sixth, and seventh angels who are sounding their trumpets. I read it from the New Living. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle, angel, messenger, crying loudly as it flew through the air, Terror, terror, terror! to all who belong to this world, because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. So, what are the fifth and sixth trumpets? Judgments? Well, locusts from the bottomless pit that cause torment for five months. People want to die. 
the pain is so intense, they just want to die. But God won't let them die. For good reason. He wants them to repent. And the sixth trumpet judgment is the four angels from the Euphrates River and the demonic army of 200 million that kill one-third of the remaining people on the earth. These people, and the people today, they want to worship demons. So God says, have some demons. He lets the demons have some free reign to do what they love to do, which is to hurt, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. But what do people do after this clear demonstration of pure demonic evil? They keep on worshipping demons. They don't repent. They refuse to repent because the hearts are unredeemed. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 And so now we see the seventh angel blow his trumpet which ushers in the incredibly severe and destructive bowl judgment. So this is the third woe. Okay, So the bowl judgments are the third woe. First way was the five months of incredible pain where you want to die but you can't. Second way was the 200 million army with the who kills a third of mankind that's left. And then the third way is ushering in these seven bold judgments. But before the bold judgments happen, there's this announcement from heaven. And he says, the seventh trumpet sounds, in the kingdoms of this world, become the kingdoms of our Lord. How does this work? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're only part way through the tribulation, and this announcement makes it sound like Jesus has already come back, yet there's still seven judgments to come. Can anyone see the discrepancy here? Well, there is an answer. And we have to go back into the original language, the Greek that it was written in. This is really interesting. I found this quite encouraging. The verb translated have become is in the aorist active indicative tense. <laughs> Don't ask me what that is. But what it means is that the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord. So in the Greek, the tense is that the kingdoms of this world are becoming. It's in the process of becoming. Now here's a word we're going to learn this morning. It's called proleptic. It's what is referred to as a proleptic statement. That is, it's an event so certain that it is spoken of as if it has already taken place. So I'll say that again. A proleptic statement is an event so certain that it is spoken of as if it has already taken place. Now, how can God be so sure? Well, because he not only knows the future, but he also plans the future. He determines the future. God is in control. And last week we looked at um, the word God. Almighty, and the word Almighty is pancotrator, and it means he has his hands on everything. He's in control. He's got everything under control. I'm going to look at one more example of a, what's that special word again? Proleptic statement. This is Isaiah 53. When was this written? Before Jesus died on the cross or after? A long time before, right? He was wounded. For our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities. That is past tense. He, had Jesus been wounded for our transgressions when Isaiah wrote that? 
he hadn't physically come to earth yet. He hadn't actually been killed, right? In God's eyes, absolutely. But from our time scale, on human time, from what we see, it hadn't happened. But because God said it, it's guaranteed. So Jesus hadn't come at the time when I wrote this, but he still wrote it in the past tense because it was as certain as if it had already happened. And again, what kind of statement is that called? It's a proleptic statement. Okay, now here is the definition of this word from the dictionary. Proleptic comes from the word prolepsis, and the definition is the representation or assumption of a future act or development as if presently existing or accomplished. The representation or assumption of a future act or development as if presently existing or accomplished. Now, why do I go through all that? Because this is something that we need to do in our lives. Here's an example. Romans 8.23 And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope. That anticipation, yeah? For the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. So this proleptic attitude, this anticipatory attitude, should make us look forward to the day when we get our new body. We should be thinking, God said it, it's as good as done. I should be thinking, I've already got my body. God said it, it's as good as done. It's not if I get my body, or maybe God will come back, or maybe God's going to deliver me. No, (laughs) it's guaranteed. And that's what it says here. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the resurrection bodies and new bodies he has promised us. So that's the attitude we should have as we go through the suffering and persecution in this world, the pain of living in this fallen world. We should be living in anticipation of the good we will experience as a part of God's kingdom, as one of his children. So when we suffer down here, remember that in eternity we'll look back and there'll be no regrets. No regrets. We know that God had everything in control and that he used all the hardships we experience for our eternal good. It's all for our good. So if we have this attitude, this anticipatory attitude that God is going to bless us with living forever in his presence, with his new body, with everything being perfect, then we will not give up. Now here's an example I thought of. Think of a woman in the midst of childbirth. She is screaming in agony, and yet she is willing to endure the pain. In fact, she chose to experience this pain when she's decided to get pregnant. Why? Who would want to do that? Because she knows that the result of this pain is a baby, and she loves that baby. She loves her baby more than she dislikes her pain. And that causes her to embrace her pain, because without the painful experience of childbirth, she would never experience being a mum. Does that make sense? She is living in anticipation of a future event. She's never seen her baby, but she knows it's in there, right? She has a proleptic attitude. (laughs) And it should be the same for a Christian. When we come to Christ, we should be aware that it's going to be a tough life. 
that make sense? We come to Christ like the woman who gets pregnant. She knows it's going to be a hard road before she gets that baby. We know it's going to be a hard road before we see Jesus. We need to understand what the scripture means when it says that narrow is the road that leads to life and few that find it. It is a difficult road. So when the hard times come, guess what? We're expecting them. We're saying, this is what I signed up for because this is part of the process of me becoming like Jesus. We embrace the hard times. We embrace the suffering. and Not that we enjoy it, but we know that it's actually for our good, if that makes sense. So there's two options, that, two ways we can speak or think. Those who are spiritually dyslexic, <laughs> there's another word for you, dyslexic, they say, I can't make sense of what's going on. Everything's backward. Why even worship? What's the point of praying? Just look at how messed up everything is now. Are they looking ahead? No, they're looking at here and now. On the other hand, those who are spiritually proleptic, they say, even in the middle of my tribulation, in the midst of my difficulty, in the center of my pain, I know God is on the throne and he is good. And there's a story I want to read to you. It illustrates this, a real-life story. A baby girl was born 31 days prematurely to Matt and Cindy McCollum, missionaries in Honduras. Little Maria Nicole stopped breathing and began to turn blue. Since the tiny airport at La Sibia was closed, it was doubtful whether she would survive. She couldn't get to the hospital. But I was blessed, this is a story from another pastor, but I was blessed talking with Matt's dad, Jerry, the next morning because before he even knew the outcome, before he even knew if this little girl was going to die or not, he said, certain members of Cindy's family who aren't interested in the things of God are now praying and seeking him about this situation. And the healthcare official in Honduras has rededicated her life to Christ, watching Matt and Cindy go through this trial. Great things are happening. You see his attitude? Jerry could have said, My kids are serving God, and this is what he does? Instead, he's proleptic. He's got this anticipatory attitude. He's saying, God's good, God's in control. I'll take you to another example where they did not use proleptic thinking or have a proleptic attitude, and that is the Israelites when God was taking him across the Red Sea. Here they were, stuck in this place, the Red Sea in front of them, the cliffs on either side and the Egyptian army behind them, and they're about to kill Moses. <laughs> Where was God's promises? Were they believing in God's promises? And then God tells Moses to do his thing and they get through the sea. And then on the other side, Miriam leads them in worship and they're all singing this great song. But why couldn't they sing the song before they crossed the Red Sea? Okay? So we want to be proleptic in our thinking. We want to have this attitude where we trust God in the midst of the trial and we're not complaining and bickering against God, murmuring, and like the children of Israel did, <laughs> Moses, why have you brought us here? This is a terrible situation. Instead of saying, God, you've kept your promise every time so far. You've got us out of Egypt. You've judged Egypt ten times. You've done everything you've said. 
we look forward to how you're going to deliver us. Let's worship you now. Okay? That's what we should be doing. That's the main point of what I'm saying here. So let's move on to verses 16 and 17. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned again. Past tense. In heaven, we still be thinking proleptically. Okay? Even before these things happen, the church in heaven will be waiting, think it's as good as done. So, again, we give you thanks. This thanksgiving isn't to thank God that he's already done this, but that the hour has come for it to take place, and that these things are permanently set in motion. And a quote from John Corson, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. Such is the language of heaven. If you want heaven in your heart or home, speak proleptically as you praise God prolifically. <laughs> and verse 18, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So the first part of that verse says, in verse 18, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. So God's punishment matches the crime. All right, God is always fair. There's nothing arbitrary about it. He's not just angry for no reason. The nations are angry with God, and he responds with his wrath. And it's only fair that those who destroy the earth are themselves destroyed. Why are the nations angry? Well, it's the same as anyone who rejects God. They are refusing to submit to God. They are refusing his rule over their lives. So the world will believe anything and accept any kind of religion except one that says you need to submit to God. Remember what Jesus said in the parable in Luke 19.14? The people in the parable said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And that's what the world says. They will not surrender their will to God. That's just intolerable. That's out of the question. And why? Why do people have this attitude? Well, John 3.18-21 There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light. Again, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. So God's judgment is fair. People who don't go to God, who run away from God, they hate God. They hate the light. There's no middle ground here. Also in verse 18 it says, And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. So, always remember that there is a reward for our obedience when it's motivated by a thankful heart for what God has already done for us. You realize that we will stand before God at the Bema seat, not the judgment of condemnation, but the judgment of reward. And all the things we did for ourselves, they'll be burnt up. So you imagine a picture of your life, a video of your life, 
And all the things you did for yourself are deleted. <laughs> all those scenes where you live for yourself, you're selfish and sinning and whatever. But all the times when you're responding to God's love and serving Him and doing the things that He called you to do and you're led by His Spirit, they remain and you get rewarded for all those times. We want to be able to say, like Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who, what's those words? Eagerly look forward to his appearing. Proleptic thinking. <laughs> okay? They're anticipating. They're living as though it's already happened. If I'm living as though Jesus is already here, I should be not willing to do anything that would offend him. So are we, am I, are you, eagerly looking forward to being with Jesus, to being in his physical presence, or are you consumed by the cares, distractions, and worries of this life? And there's a couple of quotes. I don't know if I got them right, but only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And that's part of a poem by C.T. Studd. And there's a, a quote by John Stott, and it went something like, at any moment we are as close to God as we choose to be. So at any moment we are as close to God as we choose to be. So now, verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. So the temple of God in heaven, we know that there was and there will be a temple on earth. But that's only a copy. It's a shadow of the reality. The real temple, the original temple, is in heaven. And the book of Hebrews tells us that it was in the real temple in heaven that Jesus applied his blood on the real Ark of the Covenant to provide remission or forgiveness for our sins. And verse 19 also says, The Ark of his Covenant was seen in his temple. Now, notice what it's called. The Ark is called. It's called the Ark of his Covenant. A covenant is a promise. Remember that a covenant is a promise. Go back to John's day. They would understand that the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, it was the earthly representation of God's throne or God's presence, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. So this would have reminded them, it would have encouraged them and caused them to think of God's continual presence and his faithfulness to keep his promises. Now, the application for us today we need to be reminded that God is still on the throne, that God is still in control, even when it doesn't feel like it and it doesn't look like it. Our hearts may be broken, our bank account empty, our reputation ruined, but these are only temporary issues. Always remember that God is a covenant or promise-keeping God. He will always do what he says. Even when we don't understand why things happen the way they do, God will keep his promises. We need to trust him. Also in verse 19 it says there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. So what does that remind you of? The presence of God. When did we see lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake? It's in the Old Testament. Big hint. 
Mount Sinai and God giving the law. Okay, so when God reveals His presence, is often a sign. Okay, and this is the sign that God's presence was there. All right, and you can refer to Exodus chapter nineteen, sixteen to nineteen. Now to close, I'd like to read some Psalms or some verses from the Psalms, and I want you to look for the anticipatory or proleptic thinking that's in these Psalms. These are Psalms written by David as he was going through hard times and I want you to see how his future attitude, that his vision of the future when God was going to make all things right, how that affected the way he thought and the way he lived. So the first one is Psalm 62. The title in the New King James is A Calm Resolve to Wake for the Salvation of God. That title is proleptic in itself, isn't it? So, it says, I wait quietly before God, for my victory comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will never be shaken. So many enemies against one man, all of them trying to kill me. To them, I'm just a broken down wall or a tottering fence. They plan to topple me from my high position. They delight in telling lies about me. They praise me to my face, but curse me in their hearts. Let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. O my people, trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. Common people are as worthless as a puff of wind, and the powerful are not what they appear to be. If you weigh them on scales, together they are lighter than a breath of air. So notice that David is not trusting in people, and now these next verses talk about how his proleptic thinking, his anticipation of being with the Lord, affects his living. He says, Do not make your living by extortion or put your hope in stealing. And if your wealth increases, don't make it the center of your life. God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. Power, O God, belongs to you. Unfailing love, O Lord, is yours. Surely you repay all people according to what they have done. So that's Psalm 62. So did you notice the proleptic thinking where David in the midst of those really hard times where it said, so many enemies against one man, all of them trying to kill me. He went through some severe testings in his life. But he just said, he started out, I wait quietly before God, for my victory comes from him. He's suffering, all these people are trying to kill him, and he says, my victory comes from God. Proleptic thinking, anticipatory thinking, God will come through, God will keep his promises. There's only one more short verse that I want to read, or a couple of verses. It's from Psalm 37. It's verses 23 to 25a. And it says this, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Once I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned.
Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what you've shown us through these scriptures. Lord, if we can just trust what you say, you delight in every detail of our life. If we stumble, we will never fall, because the Lord holds us by the hand. Once I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned. Father, thank you that you will never abandon us. You will never let us go. Lord, your promise in Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the next verse it says, God will be our help. God, you are our help. And so we just trust you. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you and to think productively, to think, well, I'm going through some tough times now, but you've promised to be with me. You've promised to bring me through. And we can thank you. We can be saying, God, thank you for bringing me through this trial, even before the trial's finished. Help us to be worshippers like that, Lord. And not like the children of Israel who bitterly complained and almost killed Moses and then worshipped after, but help us to worship before. In the trial, Lord, to praise you in the storm as the song goes. So we just commit ourselves to you. Help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.